reminder for later on here in the service is at the close, um, at the end of the, the sermon, we're going to move into Lord's Supper and um, partaking of communion together. Um, so just a reminder that we'll be doing that at the end. And um, continuing with the last number of weeks, there's the offering boxes in the back. Um, so as far as offerings and tithes, um, please feel free to uh, place those in there at any time, um, before, after, during, whatever um, feels comfortable for you. But uh, this morning we're going to enter into our first week of studying through the book of Philippians. So it is yet another short epistle, another prison epistle, uh, written by the Apostle Paul. Um, but we're going to be studying here through the book of Philippians. And I'm excited for this book for a number of reasons. I'm not going to list them all now. As we continue to get into those things, I will tell you that these are one of the things I was excited about. Um, it's interesting, this morning as I look out, I see that the, a large number of the people that are absent today are obviously our middle-sitting people, right? Um, so I feel like if I'm going to be looking here, I'm going to be looking through Caleb right to Brent and then scanning back around. Um, but it's also, it's funny because you can, you know, we have all been here for most of us long enough to know where everybody sits. Uh, some of you are in slightly different positions, and I don't like it. Um, whether you're, you know, like here, you're supposed to, you got the college, you're supposed to be back a little bit more. I don't like that. Um, you know, Porterfields, Classins, Inakis, Morellos, like, so some of you guys are in your right position, so thank you for that. Um, okay, we're a team here. We all got to play a position, all right? Um, but no, I'm excited to get here into Philippians, and um, last week, if you remember, we actually did something entirely different, had nothing to do with Philippians, so we may have thought. We were in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we looked a lot at this understanding as Solomon, um, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is going through this, and this is where we see vanity, vanity, all is vanity, right? This understanding that if there is no God, if this is all that life is, is what we have now, what is temporary, what is material then everything is absolutely meaningless. And this coming from the perspective of a man who had everything. Everything that people say, well, if I had that, um, I wouldn't be complaining. Or if I had this much, my life would be perfect. Um, if my job just paid me a little bit more, if I just had um, this much more land or this much bigger of a house or all these things. And we see him writing this saying, I have all of these things. And it's worthless if this is all that there is. These things mean nothing. The book of Philippians is one that can be boiled down to a few different things. One of the primary themes here, which should be encouraging for many of us, is this understanding of joy. Philippians is a book of joy. Now, how many of you this morning would say, hey, I could use some joy in the world? Okay, A lot of us say it all the time. It's always going to be true, probably forever. Um, you turn on the news and you're saying, wow, where is the joy in the world? It seems to have all been evaporated, as if all the joy has been taken out of the news. Um, I even remember uh, way back in the Wayback Machine of the early 2000s, when you could turn on the news and things were somewhat positive, uh, of a heroic thing that took place or some incredible achievement accomplished by an individual in the country and how awesome it was to see these things and be encouraged by the state of things, whereas now there's a lot of uh, bickering, arguing. It's kind of a sad thing to turn on the TV. Um, I'd never have grown up really in a time, and some of you have, where the news anchor 
was like the person you wanted to be or you want your child to be kind of like the Tom Brokaw or that's clearly the extent of my news anchor knowledge. I was born in 1992, okay? So be with me on that. Um, we just don't, I, my generation didn't really have those examples of the news anchor, the person who was um, completely bound, seemingly bound to the truth and only being the positive where they would talk about the negative things in the world but yet give the positive call or the spin of, hey, but it's going to be okay. Um, those times are all but gone. And now it is all arguing without any sort of listening. But we see today people are consumed with the pursuit of happiness and of joy, yet often they find themselves um, faulty in their, in their ability to actually attain it. People constantly pursue happiness, constantly are pursuing joy, satisfaction, value, whatever other word we want to use for it, but yet are very, very unable to attain it. Now we can... Obviously, many of you are thinking, well, yeah, because they're looking for it in all the wrong places, which is absolutely true here. For some, happiness is going to be found in their circumstance. For others, it may be in their relationships, where people accrue value based on a relationship they have with another person. Um, for some, they, they find their happiness or their value in their job. They say, I am only happy if I hold this position or this particular job or work at this particular company and if that were to ever be removed their entire identity and all of their happiness would also go away there are also those that um, as sad as it may be but though we know this to be true they find their happiness in tearing down other people they see happiness they sense it they see joy and that's not okay with them um, if i can't be happy then no one else is going to be happy and they find happiness in tearing others down these are all things that many of us have all been guilty of at some point in our lives, maybe at some point even this past week. But these are things that are temporal. This understanding of happiness being a temporary thing based on circumstance. And joy is something that is far more than that. Um, but rather than elaborate on a th big theology of joy, we'll do that as we continue through the four chapters. But biblical joy being a settled conviction that God is sovereign and working all things for his glory, and he brings great joy to those who love him. Um, the joy that Christians have is the joy unlike any other. Um, the, the Christian should have a joy that far surpasses the happiness of a person who just got a promotion. This is to be a never-ending, a constant, a thing that we always come back and once again return to when our circumstance does change. Why then is a Christian able to retain joy with the loss of a job or even in a loss of a loved one? Does that mean that there is no sadness and no grief? Absolutely not. But the Christian returns to joy because we know who our God is, who it is that we serve, and what it is that he is ultimately doing. The person without God looks at circumstance and says, see, this is all that the world is. It's nothing but sadness and grief and stress and sin, so why even bother? There is no hope. And so as we go through Philippians, some of you um, could probably sit here and by the time I'm even halfway done, we'll have read throughout the whole book of Philippians, maybe two or three times. It is an incredibly short book. In my Bible, it is almost two and a half full pages. Perhaps 10, 15 minutes of reading here. We're going to take a lot longer than 10 or 15 minutes to get through the whole book, I can assure you. But as we study this out, we are going to see a continual theme of joy amidst a number of different circumstances. And since we are introducing this book, it'll be important to give a bit of context. But let's read just the first two verses, and then we'll pray. 
Um, here Paul is writing, he announces this at the very outset. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we, we praise you this morning for the giving of your word, for your absolute um, sovereignty in all things, for your being all-powerful, for being all-knowing, for simply being the God that we know you to be through your word and the way that you have continued to reveal yourself. We thank you, as we always do, that you did not remain silent, but that you have, seeking, you have sought to to show us who you are in your word, that you continue to show yourself and testify to your, to your power and to your might throughout creation that any day that we may seem as if we are distant from you or, or begin to doubt or to question whether or not you do exist, um, we, we need only to, to look around outside to see all that you have made uh, by the work of your, of your word. Father, we pray that you would be with our study here this morning and as we continue uh, to be together as your church and as we commune uh, not only with one another but with you here this morning. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here Paul makes it very, very clear who it is that's writing it. It's, you know, Paul, right? He announces himself at the very beginning. These letters are found in a different format than the way that we do. Um, just going to take a quick poll to get a little bit of activity out of you guys. You guys are excited about that. I know some of you are like, what, 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 I have to, like, move or speak? Yep. Okay, we're going to take a poll. It's going to be super, super formal. We're going to go show of hands here, okay? How many of you still handwrite letters to anybody? Okay. Trying to check some stuff. Wow, that's actually a lot more. A lot more on this side, too. Look at you. Okay. Um, handwritten letters. When you start your letter, do you start off by announcing who you are? Okay, some of you guys are laughing, right? Because that would be ridiculous, right? That's not usually how we started off our letters. I don't sit down to write my wife a love letter, which I'm going to openly admit I don't do, so I'm sorry. She just, I think she was looking at like, I don't get those, okay? So I'm not going to give a false impression here. Um, not sure I ever did, but um, I don't start with, you know, Matt and then a description of who I am. Um, one, it's assumed probably in the address that, you are writing the letter, but usually we tend to close with who we are. Um, but it's not often that many of us read letters that we receive from another person with this great mystery, hopefully to be revealed at the end, of who it is that's writing it. Um, you get a letter in the mail, you see on the front of the card, kind of, it's pretty clear who it is that it's from. Or even some of you, you look down at the bottom to see who wrote it before you begin to read. Um, I don't think, I'm going to guess, many of you don't block that out until the very end and try to guess who always did it. Um, as fun of a game as that may be, that is not necessarily the format that we do here. But Paul is very clear at the beginning. It is Paul and Timothy. This does not mean that Timothy is aiding in writing the letter, but Timothy is with him. We understand and we'll continue on uh, later on in the coming weeks with a little bit of this relationship here. But Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, to the church at Philippi. And where is it that we find him? If you're never sure, just guess in prison, okay? Just guess in prison. Constantly, this guy seemed to have found himself 
in quite literally in chains and being in prison. He was in his fourth year of Roman custody awaiting the decision of the emperor Nero. We're familiar with him a little bit. It's not a very positive picture. Nero was an absolutely terrible ruler, and we understand that for many different reasons. But this is the context here of which Paul is now writing to this church while in chains, and Timothy is with him. Um, I thought about that a lot this week of the consistency in which Paul found himself imprisoned. And based on current events, I sat back and thought, you know, let a, Paul could never be a Supreme Court nominee, right? Because he's constantly been in prison, so he's, no, he's not qualified for that. But he would also probably never even be able to hold a position likely within the church based on this resume. Is that an interesting thought for some of you guys? That Paul could not probably be a minister currently in the church? Same person, but we would see that he had been in prison and we would go, oh, sorry, bud, you're out. And I thought that this was very interesting. Now, obviously, we can go back and forth on why, but it was just a thought that I had never considered that stood out that we could uh, deny the Apostle Paul any kind of leadership in a church because he was imprisoned, which is why it's always important to ask, why? Why is it that Paul was in prison? Was it because he was doing awful, terrible things? Confidently say no. Confident, right? No. He was a Christian. That's why he was in prison, right? Because he was preaching the gospel, because he sought to have people growing in their faith, to, to come to a point of maturity, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. People didn't like that, and he was imprisoned. So then we can take a little bit of background on the city of Philippi here. This is a very important city in northeastern Greece. Uh, this commanded a land route to Asia Minor. So basically, instead of climbing up all the mountains, going through all of these hills, all this horrible traveling that would have taken place, this is basically a straight shot for you to get to where it is that you needed to go. So obviously, there was a lot of trade that took place. Um, also, they were blessed with gold mines located in these nearby mountains. Now, you can imagine, because we understand economics a bit, if you are a city that holds a massive trade route with a lot of traffic and you're surrounded by gold in the mountains... Uh, things are going to go very, very well for you as a city. You're going to have a very high place of importance in these things. And this had a, a heightened importance in Paul's day. But prior to that, um, it had a great importance under the person of Philip II. How many of you thought about that guy this week? I'm sure you all did. You said, man, today's Tuesday. Got to think about Philip II, right? So since you guys have already considered all of that, I won't go into it. Uh, but maybe you know his son, Alexander the Great. Okay, So this is, this is a, a massive understanding here with this city. So this had great significance for Philip II, for Alexander the Great. Um, Philippi is where we find the Battle of Philippi. Not a very creative name for the battle here, which it seems to often happen throughout history as the battle and just wherever it was. Um, but this is between Antony and Octavian, also known as Caesar Augustus, versus Brutus and Cassius. This battle marked the end of the Roman Republic. Um, lots of different significances here. Um, Caesar Augustus we would later become emperor, and many of you are familiar with him based on the reading of Luke 2 every year at Christmas. That's usually about the extent of what it is that we know from him. Um, but this city had an incredible significance, not only for Paul, but previously. And as Alexander the Great came through, continuing in battles, um, seeking to create every single place, every city-state, every place he would conquer, to make it as much uh, as Greek as possible. 
So you would have been in this city, you would have wandered around having seen Rome, and you would have said, wow, this place looks a lot like Rome. But you would have felt, if you did not know, you would have felt as if you were in Rome at this time, because quite simply, that was the intention. It was meant to absolutely reflect what Rome was to be. And so here they had a church. Obviously, he's writing not just to a general group of people, but Paul is writing to the church, which is at Philippi, which he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. This was the first church that Paul had founded in Europe. Paul had come here on a second missionary journey upon being directed by the Holy Spirit. Take a moment to flip over to Acts chapter 16. And then maybe just keep your finger here. We'll, we'll end up back here in a moment. It is here in Acts 16 where Paul has his vision to get up and to go. We see in chapter 16, verses 9 through 10. It says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. Now you have to understand that this vision seems to be a lot more um, maybe encouraging to Paul as opposed to the conversations Abraham has had of get up and go somewhere. Okay, God, where? I'll just tell you, just go. Right here is go to Macedonia. He has his point of where it is that he is to go. And after, verse 10, he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel Unto them. So Paul receives the vision to go to travel to Macedonia. Why? Because it's an awesome city? No, he's going saying, We are being called here to go and to preach the gospel to them. The makeup of the church was largely Gentiles. There was no synagogue showing that the Jewish population would have been absolutely small. There were some Jewish proselytes there. Um, but this city, again, looking just like Rome, didn't even have a synagogue because I think you needed at least 10. Uh, Jews there to have it. So the fact that there is no synagogue means there's a lot of different uh, things going on here. And, and we see throughout Acts, and we're going to see here one of these stories um, and the conversion here of Lydia. In verse 11 and 12, continuing here, we're going to stay in Acts 16 a little bit, just getting an understanding of what is the church of Philippi, how did it become, and what exactly is going on around this time. Starting in verse 12, And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. And out of the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted there. What's interesting is, with no synagogue, how then were they going to gather together and be joined? There's no place for them to go. There is no synagogue. But rather than just say, well, we don't have a place. We're in trouble. They would meet continuously at this riverside, having prayers together, encouraging one another, doing these different things together. So Paul is arriving here. He knows there's no synagogue to go to. We know that biblically there are a lot of people, such as Paul, Peter, even Jesus himself, was very comfortable running into the synagogue and telling everybody what they had wrong, right? We kind of see that here. Um, but Paul, knowing there is no synagogue, goes down, knowing there will be people gathering by the riverside. And he goes there, and he begins speaking unto the women. Again, the first time that the gospel now is really reaching into Europe. 
And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. So they began preaching. He's speaking with this woman here, a seller of purple, again, a very um, successful individual. She heard. The Lord opens her heart to the things which are being spoken of Paul. And then what do we see her response being in verse 15? And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye, if ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. So this, these, they're gathering around here. He's speaking and preaching unto these women. And yet she receives the gospel. She believes upon the Lord. And then her response is to be baptized, her and her household, and says, Come on into the house. So here we see the church of Philippi essentially being formed here in this place, led by this woman, Lydia. Now slide down to verse 25. This is one that many of you are familiar with, 25 through 34. This is the, the interaction here with the Philippian jailer, which is an absolutely incredible story. We're going to just fly through some of this because it gives us context to what is going on in this city in the context of this church at the time that Paul is going to be writing this. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. So here they had been cast into prison, in short order, as typically would be happening. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. Here they are, Paul and Silas, singing praises unto God, prisoners hearing them. They're not sitting back in the prison, wallowing in the self-pity. They're not whining and complaining and being so distressed by these things. They're praising God for what it is that he's done and who he is. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loose. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. So here we understand that this all is happening, and I think it's really funny that Luke here in the book of Acts accounts that he was awakening from his sleep. Right? We don't just see it as if there's any shame in being awake as this stuff happens, having no control over it, but we see that he is actually asleep, having to be awoken from the sleep and drawing out his sword to kill himself because he understood the punishment he would endure and incur if the prisoners were to escape. He too would be killed. And we see an incredible response. Now, I don't exactly know the, what the uh, plan of action here would be if any of us are ever in prison, doors open, um, what, what the impulse would be by many of you. Would it be to run? Would it be to stay? But here we see the example of them remaining here, understanding all that is at stake. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is not a question that most people just come to daily in their life. If we were to gather out all, each and every one of us here in this room, to go out into the city of Glenwood, let's even extend it out to the neighboring cities, to go out and to say to a person, just tell me the next thing that comes into your mind. 
how many people are going to say, what must I do to be saved? That's probably not the first question that a person is going to have just naturally coming into their mind. But it's important to note that if it does, the Lord is quite clearly working upon the heart of that person. They had heard Paul and Silas in their singing. They had heard the preaching that had been taking place. They had heard so many of these things, and now this jailer is hearing and seeing all that is to be done and quite simply asked them, what must I do to be saved? And rightfully so, they respond. They take the action that has been given, the situation before them, and they step forth and they respond. And they said in verse 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, and all his house, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. The incredible conversion here of this jailer. And we see God working all of these things. God is obviously the one that is causing this earthquake to take place, allowing this interaction to, have, to take place here. Now imagine what is going on. Paul and Silas in prison here. In this place, being given the opportunity to simply run out because the jail doors are open. Hey, we've been waiting for this for a long time, right? I, I'm confident... And some of you may have been imprisoned at some point. I don't know. But if imprisoned for a time, especially if frequently jail doors are opened, the temptation to just run out of those things is remarkable. But yet they chose to remain and to stay. Why? Because they knew that they were where God had intended them to be for the purpose that he had intended to preach the gospel. The day may come for some of us that our purpose in our life and our purpose in being potentially imprisoned for our faith, let's not act as if this is never a possibility in the world. It has been for thousands of years. It could be very much any day. Perhaps our absolute imprisonment because of our faith is exactly where God has intended for us to be to share the gospel with those who are also imprisoned. Um, some of you are involved in a jail ministry and, and understanding that perhaps the greatest jail ministry any of us would ever have would be to also be imprisoned with them. Now, it's important to have a note here that it would be imprisoned for a righteous reason, not because you decided to um, do something horrible, like not use your blinker and then start a fight with somebody or to go up and just start punching each other, right? Uh, this is not the person who goes and um, murders an individual so that they can be imprisoned for a great, powerful ministry, right? But this is an incredible account here of them going to this place and of preaching the gospel to all that were in their context. It was not as if, well, we've been imprisoned, Satan is one, can't preach the gospel, can't praise God for who he is here. They said, hey, while we're here, as to there are other people, we will make the gospel known. And not only to other prisoners, but also to the jailer. And so getting back here into Philippians as we deviated into the book of Acts, but giving some of the background of all that had taken place, how the church at Philippi 
was formed. Paul is writing to thank them for their generous gift of support, which we see um, in the middle of chapter 4. This is a very, very poor church, a small church, and again, incredibly poor, but yet incredibly giving. He was thankful for their generosity of their gifts, even understanding that they likely had a greater need than he himself had. But this was the church that, though poor and small, understood the power of giving. They understood the ministry that it is and the grace and the, and the understanding of the giving there. And so then we enter into the greeting here in verse 1. Paul identifies himself and Timothy as bondservants. He continues to call himself a bondservant. This is how he announces himself in Romans chapter 1, the same way he does in Titus chapter 1. Continues to introduce himself. I, Paul, a bondservant. This is a willing servant. This is not a servant who is beholden to a master begrudgingly the way that many of us would understand these things. He is a willing slave. He does not begin with his announcement of his apostolic authority and all the things that God has given to him. He does not see himself in a position above those to whom he is writing. He says, hey, me and Timothy are here. We're writing to you as simply servants, willing servants of Jesus Christ. No authority, no accomplishments. He is simply a servant. And the bond servant is someone who refused the opportunity for freedom and would voluntarily, and this goes very counterintuitive, voluntarily would resubmit himself to his master for life. The servant who has been granted freedom and says, I choose to remain enslaved to my master. Now again, this is perhaps in your mind, there's a great tension and a lot of things going on, and you're saying, well, definitely would take freedom. Right? Individual liberty and freedom, sovereignty in my own decisions and all that I'm going to do here. But this is how he's identified himself. He is bound to the Lord Jesus Christ. He also write, Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, We have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the latter. We have been released from the law. Do we understand as those who have received salvation that we are free from that? We have been released from the law. We were enslaved to the law before Christ. Enslaved, both willfully and not willfully. That was our only, only thing we could do. We could only please self. We could only please sin. And so it makes it clear that he is a bondservant. He is a willing servant of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he makes it clear who he's writing to, to all the saints. Now, who are the saints? Depending on who we ask, depending on the way that you grew up, the way that you understand what a saint is could greatly differ. Um, I'm going to tell you that a saint is not a person of elevated esteem to which a person is to pray. Um, we do not pray to anyone but to God. We do not pray to saints of the past, to great figures in the past. We don't even pray to the mother of Jesus, to Mary. Um, and this, these are incredible distinctions. The, the incredible, um, the blasphemy of praying to anyone other than God is, is something that we constantly must be aware of. Saints are not a special um, higher order of Christians. Quite simply, a saint refers to those who are set apart, specifically believers who are set apart in Christ. So therefore, the saints are who? Christians. Those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we pray to one another? Hope not. 
Okay, I like the confidence I receive from this side. I'm not praying to another. We'll pray for you, but not to one another. So this is not a special, a holy, um, high order of Christians here. This is all believers are saints. Why? Because of what he says after those words. All the saints in Christ Jesus. The saints are those who are in Christ Jesus. Flip over to Romans chapter 4, and we're almost done. I know, you're like, whoa. In Romans chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, it says, And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also. Here's having a discussion on Abraham. Saying it was for, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. The righteousness that we receive because of Christ. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to those who believe in Christ. And one of the most beautiful transactions that we will ever see, greater than anything you'll ever see in the stock market, any trade you can make. Um, I used to love swindling people out of great Pokemon cards as a kid. Right? In elementary school, I was out here. You guys don't understand Pokemon cards. That's, thank you. That's my, you're my guy, Aiden. Okay? Right? This was, this was a commodity worth trading. Okay? Um, and certain kids didn't understand the value of these things. The same way that Benji is just now understanding $1 is not the same as $5 or $20. So when he gets a birthday card with a $20 bill, I'll say, I'll trade you my dollar for your dollar. It's a good deal. For me, not for him. Okay? In the same way, this is a horrible deal, the way that we would look at it for Christ. He receives our sin, our sinful condition, all the sins that we have ever committed or will ever commit. He exchange, we exchange our sin for his righteousness. That is an absolutely fantastic deal for those who are in Christ. Incredibly powerful, incredibly remarkable. And I love the language that we see all throughout Scripture of being in Christ Jesus. Christians are placed into Christ. This is incredible union that you see of being joined together. You are placed into Christ at salvation. Have you heard of a Muslim saying that they have been placed into Muhammad? Doesn't happen. You may praise, you may worship this, this individual, this thing, these, these gods that are being made up, but there is no other, there's no religion that says that you are now placed into the one that you worship. Buddhists are not placed into Buddha. The same way a Mormon is not placed into Joseph Smith. This is language that they would not even use. The Christian, the believer, is placed into Christ. He is the one who holds us. The Father holds us in His hand. And no one can take us out. We're not going to turn there, but Romans chapter 6 tells us that we are one with Christ. This is that's powerful. I understand it's simple of, of being one, but being one with Christ. In Paul's letters, he uses the phrase, in Christ Jesus, 50 times. I found this from a commentary. I thought it was exciting. The phrase, in Christ, is used 29 times. In the Lord, 49 times. Those are just in Paul's letters. Do you think he understood being joined to Christ and being one with Christ? This is not just this understanding of we intellectually understand, oh yeah, I'm like with 
Christ, or I'm like, we're, you know, we're just partners in this thing, and we're walking side by side. No, no, you are placed into him, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And then he goes on to continue with the addressing here with the bishops and deacons. He's writing also not only to those in the church, but to the leadership, to the overseers, the elders, or the bishops, whichever word we see fit. These are those who hold a teaching position within the church, those who serve Christ and the church in preaching and teaching and setting godly examples. We see the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and also in Titus 1. And then to the deacons as well, those who primarily fulfill a service role within the church, them being two different positions between a bishop, elder, or overseer, and then a deacon. So he's writing to everybody there. No one is going to be excluded. And then we're not going to belabor here the greeting as we've discussed it in previous passages. But grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He introduces this letter not only as saying who he understands himself to be, purely a servant of Christ, but once again reminding to them the saints who are in Christ Jesus in this place. Grace and peace unto you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we've seen a little bit here in Acts 16, we see an introduction to Philippians. I know probably for some of you, um, introduction or greeting, it's kind of like, hey, what's really there, right? Let's get into some of these other things. But obviously we're at the time that we are now, and we've just done the first two. Keeping in mind this understanding of being placed into Christ. How is it then that a person begins to be placed into Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus. How does a person know who God is? How does a person be placed into Christ? How is a person set apart? And it's what we see in the ministry of Paul and even traveling to Macedonia. He went to go and to preach the gospel, even while imprisoned. And as we're going to continue throughout Philippians, we're going to see joy in every circumstance. When things were going great, rejoicing. When things were absolutely terrible, rejoicing. His circumstance did not dictate whether or not he was going to rejoice in the Lord. Now, do you think that there was any internal struggle at times? Very likely. I'm sure every time that Paul is getting beaten the 39 different times, I'm sure somewhere along the way he began to question, wow, why is this happening to me? Why am I enduring this? God, you've called me to travel to this place, and now I'm getting shipwrecked on my way. I don't doubt that you've called me here, but why then is this happening? And this is what we've seen in, in Hebrews as well as other places, and even with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was beaten, mocked, crucified upon a cross, but at no point saying, Lord, are you sure that this is what you would have for me? Are you sure that, this is, that I'm doing your will here? He absolutely knew he was doing the will of the Father, and he was doing it perfectly. And sometimes that will mean you will suffer. And it would be wonderful to stand as a pastor and say, guys, God only wants you to be rich, to be fruitful, to have everything that you have ever dreamed of because your dreams and intentions are perfectly pure and wonderful and holy and that God desires mansions for each and every one of you currently in this time. I could sell a lot of books that way. 
But I don't think many of you would enjoy reading that book either. The obedience of Christ was made perfect through suffering, not because he was this great glorious king enthroned in this mansion with many followers. We see in John chapter 6, after all these miracles had taken place, he begins to yet again open his mouth, and what does he preach? Repent and believe, and people all began to leave him. They said, oh, we don't like that. You were supposed to be doing all these things for us. But he continued to preach repentance and belief in him. And so as we go through Philippians, we're going to see an incredible, incredible display, an incredible example and encouragement for joy. Um, and so now as we close our time here in Philippians and prepare for the Lord's Supper, I'd just like to invite uh, some of the men to, to come forward as we prepare to receive communion. And um, No greater day than a day of of opening up into a book, of seeing these incredible things in the book of Acts and understanding why is it then that a Christian can rejoice. Does a Christian rejoice simply because we're told to be happy? Does a Christian, does a believer, does the person in Christ simply rejoice because we think that we should or some kind of mental um, conviction of sorts? No, it's a settled conviction in what Christ has done. Their unworthy communion that would take place. And as they would come to the Lord's table, they were abusing it. They were doing so with a, an incredible amount of disrespect, of, of irreverence. And they were doing so, um, denying it to some. And they were engaging in a, in a large amount of gluttony with these things. But they would abuse the Lord's table, using it simply as a time to, to be full. And so here Paul is, is writing to them in these things and and he gives this strong warning, and many of you are aware of it, but something that we constantly should be, be aware of here. And as he's, he's engaging in this, and he's writing to them, starting in, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, it says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. There's a warning here that takes place and, and the understanding that those who, who engage in the Lord's Supper, who partake of it, who participate in it, we must do so worthily, not not discerning the Lord's body, those who come to it apart from Christ, there's incredible warning and judgment here that was taking place. Many were being sick, many were dying because they did so, abusing the Lord's table. And in a world where there seems to be many different practices and many things which take place that uh, of rituals and things that people do without any sense of meaning or they just do these things for the sake of ceremony, this is not something that the Lord has given the church to do just as ceremony, or just to do when you get together. There's an incredible significance in this encouragement and in the giving of this for the body of Christ. We understand that this is what it is that the Lord Jesus instituted, as it says in verse 23, the same night in which he was betrayed. The same night in which our Savior was betrayed, this is what it is that he put in place for his people to do as they would come together. There's incredible significance, incredible power, incredible reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in this.
And so again, I would encourage that that in this time that only those who are who have been joined to the body, who have received the salvation that Christ offers, that that only they would partake, and that anyone here who does not who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not a believer, who has not repented and believed, um, not not only to abstain, but more importantly to do so, to do what the Lord has commanded, as we see in Luke 24, to repent and to believe, that without repentance there is no salvation. Yet Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, he institutes these things as a reminder of his sacrifice, the atonement for our sins. The sins that we can never pass away, the things we can never remove ourselves. He is the one who took these things away. And he asks us to repent and to believe. And so now as we prepare to receive the elements and as they're being passed out, explaining and going through the remembrance of some of these things, um, but first I'd like to ask uh, Phil Moraz, would you please pray for, um, as we remember the bread? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice, Lord, the ultimate sacrifice that you have for us, Lord. We examine ourselves, Lord, we come to you and we say, in the joyfulness of praise that you've given us, Lord. We pray that you And as these, the bread is being um, passed out, the reminder is, as Phil had recounted in the prayer of understanding that this, we are to examine ourselves and make sure that before we come to the Lord's table that there be absolutely uh, no unconfessed sin, no, no things in our lives that we may have forgotten to confess and understanding. Um, at times this can often be a very um, discouraging time of sitting back and, and racking your brain saying, Lord, is there a single sin that I may not have confessed? And, and understanding that it's a, a gross misunderstanding there of grace. Um, I highly doubt any of us are perfectly aware of each and every sin we have ever committed throughout our entire life, um, simply because we're also forgetful. Um, the celebration of the Lord's Supper is just that. It is a communion with not only one another, but with our Lord and a rejoicing in the salvation that we have received. The, the, the joy that salvation does bring a person of understanding that being eternally forgiven for sins, completely redeemed fully, grace fully covering all of these things, that salvation is not incomplete, it is not partial, it is complete and it is total in these things. And so that should bring nothing but joy to the believer. And though we understand um, that salvation while we can understand it to be a free gift as it is by grace, we too, in this time, as we remember the bread, understanding that it was the body of Christ, the physical, literal body of our Lord and Savior, who came down from heaven, who was beaten, who was spit upon, who was mocked, and who did bleed, and all of these things that we know to be true, his body being broken for us. His body was broken there on the cross. His body was beaten and leading up to it, and he was mocked for these things. And as difficult as it is, we return with joy 
because of why it is that he did that. He did it so that we could be saved.